Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Alitu. Podcasting is a lot of hard work, which is why I'm so glad that I found Alitu. Their user-friendly sound editing software has cut my editing time down to a third, leaving me the space to bring you more content. Shout out to Allegra, Judy, and the rest of their support staff who are always there to help me navigate the various challenges this podcast journey throws my way. To learn more about Alitu, go to the link in this episode's show notes to get started with a free seven-day trial. Using my link also helps to support this podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for the third part of the book review that I'm doing on Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. This is the final section of this podcast that I'll do on this book. So in the first two parts, if you've checked those out, I talked about respectability politics throughout. It's a it's a underlying theme throughout the book. And I thought I would use this last episode to kind of break down that topic more in depth because I've talked about it in sharing about other sections of the book, but there was a lot of good information about what respectability politics is and how it impacts marginalized communities. And you might hear a noise in the background. My daughter is currently playing in her room. But uh, I'm going to share a longer quote that kind of breaks down some of the nuance of respectability politics, and then we'll kind of go from there. Overwhelmingly, respectability is financially and emotionally expensive. Like code switching, it requires fundamental changes in how you present yourself. But there aren't just specific speech patterns that are changed in the moment. Instead, there's a nonstop remodeling of body language, wardrobe, and hairstyles so as to be seen as non-threatening, engaged, and somehow ready to join the broader world. In many ways, respectability politics treat assimilation and accommodation as mandatory. Yet, we know that respectability comes with no guarantees. The demand is that black women police their appearance, speech, and sexuality. There's a cultural pressure to be an upstanding black woman to avoid any behavior that makes black women, quote, look bad. We are expected to constantly adjust our own behavior to avoid the racist, classist, and sexist stereotypes other people might assign to us. We love a black accent on everyone but black women. Mind you, there is absolutely nothing wrong with sounding black, except that in a culture where respectability politics mean that whiteness is rendered as normative, a black girl who speaks with a black scent is judged as less valuable and less intelligent. Code switching elders teach us to make calls with our best white girl voice, but for those who can't manage to mimic that speech pattern or who can't maintain it, That accent means the loss of opportunities. We talk about stress and illness, but the stress of respectability is unparalleled. You muffle yourself over and over, 
until the screaming is in your veins, in your high blood pressure, and lower life expectancy. And then, as you look around, you realize that you didn't even get the respect, the validation, or the comfort that you thought was waiting on the other side. You've pulled away from the messy, loud, emotional spaces that represent the less respectable side of you and your culture, but at what cost? Imagining a new and less problematic future for marginalized communities means letting go of every aspect of white supremacy. It means embracing blackness in all its forms and doing the hard work of rooting out the classist narratives around it. It means doing the listening and the learning that each one of us needs in order to be accountable. We have to stop maintaining the status quo and toxic hierarchies of respectability. We must understand that our involvement in this structure is a problem, whether we were conscious of it or not in the past. We know now and we need to be willing to change our standards and expectations. As feminists, we need to take critical, radical measures in listening to women in the poorest communities about what they want and need instead of projecting narratives of ignorance onto them. We must work to unlearn the harmful narratives we've been taught and that we created in response to white supremacy. We need to let go of respectability politics and understand that whiteness as a construct will never approve of us and that the approval of white supremacy is nothing that we or any community should be seeking. We have to be willing to embrace the full autonomy of people who are less privileged and understand that equity means making access to opportunity easier, not deciding what opportunities they deserve. We need to be less concerned with appearance and more concerned with solutions. We have to remember that respectability is the poison soil white supremacy gave us. We have to be willing to regularly put the needs and concerns of those with the least before our comfort. We were taught to fear the impact of rejection by whiteness, to embrace their standards without giving much thought to the impact on our own well-being or that of our communities. We have to break down this conditioning, have to ask ourselves why we're more concerned with how we are received by white supremacist patriarchy than we are with protecting ourselves. End quote. So I won't give too much follow-up on that because that really, in a nutshell, explains what the author has been talking about with regards to respectability politics. And that's why I thought it was really important to share that context as the last episode on this book because it was interwoven through parts one and two. But this kind of drives it home and puts it in a nice, concise way of looking at the issue. And so along with the racism, classism, and in addition to sexism, there was a chapter on colorism that I thought was very interesting. And I've discussed the topic of colorism on previous episodes on this podcast. But I just want to share this quote and then give a little bit of reflection based on some things I've seen as a therapist. So, quote, colorism has existed for centuries in multiple cultures And black Americans are not the only community that places higher or lower value on someone based on how light or dark that person's skin is. Colorism is a global issue found in Latin America, East and Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, and Africa. 
Here in the United States, because we are such a diverse population, it is possible to experience privilege based on skin color inside your community and still experience oppression outside it. In the United States, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa, colorism has roots in colonialism and slavery, but in some cultures, it predates any contact with European beauty ideals that may be more related to class than to white supremacy. Laborers tanned as they worked outdoors, while the privileged had lighter complexions because they were inside. Socially, dark skin became associated with poverty and light skin with the aristocracy. Today, the premium on light skin in parts of Asia is likely tangled up with this history, along with the cultural influences of the Western world that also position rednecks at the lower end of the social strata of whiteness for similar reasons, end quote. So there's two things here that I want to comment on. The first being that in the quote, it talks about how colorism is something that has been experienced in communities before European colonialism and things like that. So in addition to this being something that is enforced in the United States by white supremacy and the history of slavery, it occurs in other cultures. So that was new information to me that this is a phenomenon that has kind of existed in many different cultures. And an example I'll give, I have a client who is Middle Eastern, and they shared with me about how living in the Middle East, they were bullied because they had a lighter complexion than other people in that area. So they experienced a form of racism known as colorism. So as a biracial black man, I definitely have experienced colorism in many different contexts, but this helped me to see outside of that vantage point and to see that other cultures and backgrounds deal with the same issue. So moving on, I just want to share something that I highlighted. So here's the quote. It's also important not to offload the emotional labor of educating providers or communities onto the marginalized people looking for support, end quote. What the author is saying here is that it's important not to task marginalized people with the responsibility of educating the privileged majority about the problems that occur to them as a result of being marginalized. So what comes to mind here is, and you know, I have a very diverse caseload as a therapist, me personally, but also a lot of my clients of color experienced this in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd last year, where myself and a lot of people of color that I know were flooded by messages or check-ins from our non-melanated colleagues, friends, family, whatever, who wanted to know what they can do to support or to be an ally, right? And I remember thinking how surreal that was to almost be like the go-to like spokesperson for 
people of color, all of this stuff is going on. I, you know, so many people were like, I had no idea that, you know, police brutality was like this until I saw that video of the knee on George Floyd's neck. And while the concern and the awareness is a really good thing, I like this quote, and I'll read it again, because it talks about don't put all of the pressure and responsibility on people who are already living in a marginalized status, because it's not all our job to educate everybody about what we've known all along. So I'll read that quote one more time, because it's very powerful. It's also important not to offload the emotional labor of educating providers or communities onto the marginalized people looking for support. So I'll kind of leave that where it is. It says everything and then some in that one sentence. So moving on, kind of continuing on the topic of respectability politics, the author goes through several issues related to feminism that aren't typically talked about in feminist literature, one of them being about intelligence. So there was some discussion about how there's a trope of Black women being angry Black women. So here's a quote that I found very powerful. There's a lot of research around young women of color and fighting, a narrative that lends itself to the idea that they are violent for the sake of violence. It ignores the fact that they are often the only people with an investment in their own safety outside their nearest and dearest, end quote. And so I would highly recommend read this book and look into these, these chapters further. But what I will say is that I appreciate that there's somebody speaking on the stereotypes that are given to marginalized people and how there's always a backstory to things. It's easy to pigeonhole somebody and and say, well, this is who they are, this is what they do. But behaviors are the result of several other factors. People don't just choose to be violent. And I like the way that this quote, you know, talks about it ignores the fact that they are often the only people with an investment in their own safety outside of their nearest and dearest. Well, if you listen to the first two episodes and just look around at the media today, we see how law enforcement is not a safe place for a lot of people of color for good reason. It's so easy to get caught up on labeling someone as violent or saying that they're fighting for the sake of fighting, but understanding that sometimes we don't feel protected and that self-defense is literally a life or death thing because of our lack of trust in the systems that are supposed to protect us. And I'll share real quickly, um, as I'm recording this episode, it this won't come out for like a, a few more days, but it's the middle of the week and I've been on the phone with a parent of one of my clients today, black male, and let's just say teenagers do impulsive stuff. It's just part of being a teenager, right? So a teenager does this impulsive thing. It gets a buzz from other peers and stuff like that, and it gets escalated. Mind you, this is a black male. So the way that the police responded to this was a kind of like a, a SWAT style, like showing up in the middle of the night, catching everybody off guard. And literally this, 
my client posed no risk to anybody, nor was what was done actually threatening. And as the parent, you know, talks to me about how everything went down and stuff, I was just blown away at the number of police misconduct things that happened and the boundaries that were overstepped and the constitutional rights that were violated. And I had to remind myself to kind of be that, you know, advocate in the moment. But I was incredibly angry and riled up as I'm listening to this because it keeps happening over and over again. So I share this story because this episode is about respectability politics and how people of color basically feel like we have to assimilate and we've used the terms code switch. We have to present a certain facade in order for people not to feel as threatened by us. And, you know, the quotes that I've shared go on to say, like, this is exhausting emotionally, physically. And at the end of the day, despite the code switching, the respectability politics, the trying to put on your white voice or to present as non-threatening or whatever, it literally does not matter. Because when it comes down to it, something like this where my client can be sleeping in the middle of the night and the police can just, all white cops showed up, by the way, not a single police officer of color, showed up and illegally searched the house and no warrants. Of course, the typical, you know, they had their hands reaching for their holsters and stuff like that with no provocation. And so I share this because sometimes people really think that people of color are exaggerating or we're making a big deal out of this. As a therapist, I hear about this shit all the time. And I've also experienced it myself. I've had an officer put his hand on his holster and tell me point blank, I have the power to end your life right now. All of this to say that we try to carry ourselves through a world where white supremacy is alive and well. The respectability politics, the code switching, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you got brown skin. That's something that we really can't change. But it goes beyond just the physical level of appearance. It is emotionally damaging. It's just a very exhausting existence. So I'm just sharing with y'all real life as I see it through the vantage point of just a black male, but also as a therapist who sees this happen. And I will comment, this is not the first time I've had a client who has dealt with law enforcement in the middle of the night. But I will say a situation occurred last year with a white male around the same age in a a similar encounter with law enforcement where the client was actually rather threatening to law enforcement, the response was completely different. It was a very calm, it was a very, we're trying to get you some help, like, it's a very, but when it's a black male, they reach for their, their holster, and it immediately escalates into hostility and human rights violations. So... We definitely got a lot of work to do, y'all. But I'm going to conclude this with one more quote by the author that kind of sums all of this up. So, quote, I could pretend that being middle class adjacent now means that I have forgotten where I came from. 
forgotten what it took to get me from at-risk youth to a published writer with two degrees. But that wouldn't serve my community, wouldn't be a good example to my children, and wouldn't let me live with myself. This veneer of respectability that came from getting more education and being able to write professionally is nice. I like knowing that people will listen to what I have to say, but I'm always aware that people don't usually listen to the black girls like me, and that even now some will carve out space for me that is separate from the other people like me. Because you'll decide that me being able to get where they didn't means that they aren't trying hard enough. In fact, they're trying just as hard, but they didn't have the same luck, the same relatives, the same community. It's not a question of, why can't they do what you did? It's a question of, why can't we give everyone else the same support and access? That's the battle feminism should be fighting. Without the extra obstacles of racism and classism, so many more people like me could be succeeding. That's the future this liberal wants to live in. End quote. So thank you for listening to this book review of Mickey Kendall's book, Hood Feminism. There's going to be more interviews and reviews of good content coming up this fall on the podcast, so definitely stay tuned. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.